All right, so John chapter 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 35. I'm going to go to verse 45. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Therefore Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is the word of the Lord that we're focusing on this morning. And uh, there's some challenging truths that Jesus presents to us here. We need to pray for his grace to help us hear and understand and believe and ultimately submit to what Jesus teaches us here. So let's pray together. Would you please Pray with me in your own heart and mind as I pray this morning. Father, thank you for the grace that we have of your glory, promise of your glory, the hope of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Father, truly you have been gracious to us and merciful beyond words. For those of us who have had in our own hearts the sanctity and the holiness of your name made known. We rejoice that you in your sovereign goodness have chosen to move upon our hearts and to bring us out of the darkness in which we were living. Father, there are very few passages in the scriptures that present the glory and the holiness of your name and as it's revealed in the salvation of sinners, the way that this passage presents it to us. So I pray, Father, that for the sake of Jesus Christ, in His name and for His glory, that You would send Your Spirit upon us, Lord, to fill us, strengthen us to comprehend the height and the breadth, depth and the length of the love of Christ, and to be filled with all the fullness of God. Open our minds, Lord, to convict us of sin and of righteousness and judgment according to what you, Lord Jesus, have have promised the Helper will be doing when he comes. 
Convict us, Lord. Convince us of the truth and help us live in its light. Lord, we pray for Jesus' sake that you'd be among us, that even unbelievers who may be among us in this room would be able to say with a pure and true conscience, surely God is in this place. Lord, that's our hope. That's our aim. That's what we long for. That's what we're praying for now, Lord. This is a vain exercise if you do not come and bless it with your power by your presence. So, Lord, would you please sanctify your truth in our hearts this morning. Help us as one people exalt your name together. Lord, help us glorify you in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right. So we come to John 6, and really what we're focusing on this morning is the, the crux of John 6, the, the difficulty of the difficult teaching that Jesus gives us in John chapter 6. This section has fallen like a hammer upon many people who have slowed down enough to pay attention to what Jesus is actually teaching here. It probably does contain one of the most difficult and hard-hitting teachings that we find anywhere in Scripture. Uh, for some of us who have seen it truly and by God's grace have been able to rejoice in it, this passage contains the very foundation of our hope in our great conquering and sovereign King, the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, what this section in John 6 provides is Jesus' explanation for why this crowd of people was not yet believing in him. Jesus had told them earlier on in John 6, verses uh, really 26 through 29, he said, if, if you want eternal life, if you want life with the Father, then you must believe in me as the one whom he sent. And we recalled at that point that Jesus does not say you must believe and work in order to attain eternal life in me. He simply says, you must believe in me. You must come to me with an empty hand of faith, not offering anything to me, but simply receiving from me the fullness of salvation that I came to give to you. These Jews weren't quite ready to do that, right? And according to verse 30, the reason why they weren't ready to believe in Jesus like that was simply because they didn't believe Jesus had done enough yet to prove himself to be trustworthy. Right? So in verse 30, they say, okay, Jesus, you're calling us to believe upon you for eternal life. I'll tell you what, you do more signs to prove to us that you are trustworthy, and then we will make a judgment and we will put our trust in you. So, so, so who's, who's in the dock and who's on the, on the judgment seat in that scenario? Right, this, this reminded the attitude of this crowd reminded me of C.S. Lewis's short little essay, God in the Dock, right, where, where he describes in just one little section there where, where he describes man as sitting himself in the judgment seat over God and putting God in the dock, right, putting God at, at, at the bar and, and, and evaluating him based upon man's judgment and man's opinion. That's exactly what this crowd is doing here. Saying, Jesus, if you want us to trust in you, you need to wow us so that we then, can, we then will be willing to do that. 
So the, the crowd's reason for why they weren't yet believing in Jesus was because Jesus hadn't done enough to prove himself to them. But that's not the reason Jesus gives for why this crowd is not yet believing in him. Jesus gives a radically different reason for why this crowd is not yet coming, which we will get to in just, just a moment. Now before we get there, I, wanna, I want you to notice something that Jesus says in verse 35. This is what we, we, we couldn't get to last week. Right in that, in that sermon that the Lord woke me up, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, with a burden to write, and I wrote it all last Sunday morning. This is part of it that we couldn't get to uh, in verse 35. Jesus, notice what Jesus says to this crowd. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Literally at the end there, it's he who believes in me will never thirst ever again. It's very interesting what Jesus does here in this verse. In verse 34, these Jews, the crowd, had just been begging him, Lord, please give us that bread, that that bread that's greater than Moses. Please give us that bread forever. In verse 35, Jesus responds basically saying, no, 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 you still don't get it. I'm not not here to be the bread giver. I'm here to be the bread. I'm here to be the one who was given in order to give life to the world. That's, That's me. I am the bread of life. I'm the living bread who was sent down from heaven to give life to the world. Now that's that's enough. That's fascinating enough in itself, but I want you to notice what Jesus does right after that. He says, I am the bread, I am what's given to you from the Father. And here's the evidence that I truly am that bread. The one who comes to me will never hunger. And the one who believes in me will never thirst. See, what Jesus does there is he makes this statement of absolute truth. I am the bread of life. And then he gives proof to show that that statement is true. He offers a very, and and notice, he offers a very practical, personal, and experiential proof to show that he truly is the living bread from heaven. He could have just pointed to his miracles and say, my miracles prove that I'm the bread from heaven. He could have pointed to his teachings and said, my teaching proves that I am the bread from heaven. He could have pointed to the voice of the Father ripping open the heavens and declaring over his son, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He could have pointed to all of that to say, that proves that I am the true bread. But look at what he does here. He says, I am the true bread, and you're going to know that when you come to me. You're going to know that when you believe in me, because when you come and when you believe in me, you're going to find the satisfaction that your soul is truly craving. Now, to come and to believe, that's talking about the same act of faith. That when you are convinced that Jesus is Lord, when you are convinced that he is sovereign in your heart, that he truly is the Savior of the world, you begin to believe in him. And that kind of faith, that act of faith is actually a coming to him. It's not a passive thing where you're sitting back and letting something happen to you. It's a a conviction about who Jesus is that leads you to act. It leads you to run to Jesus, to flee to him for refuge, to grab a hold of him as if he's the only thing that's going to save you and give you life. You come to him. You believe in him. And Jesus says, the one who does that 
They will know the proof in their own hearts that I am the true bread from heaven because they will be satisfied with me. You know, we all have spiritual longings and cravings. You, you have spiritual desires, whether you are a believer in this room or not. If you are an unbeliever, you have cravings in your soul that you are seeking to have satisfied in, in, in innumerable ways, right? Whether that's sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? Mick, Mick Jagger's already told us he couldn't find satisfaction there, Right? Maybe it's in career, maybe it's, maybe it's in the respect and being honored in the eyes of men, seeking glory and praise from men. Maybe, maybe women, ladies, I haven't mentioned this since I preached the First Timothy 2, okay? So don't get mad at me here. This is what the Bible says, and you need to submit to it. Maybe you're seeking that satisfaction and getting attention from yourself in wrong ways. Wearing certain kinds of clothing that show off your body in ways that make men around you stumble. Don't think you're not culpable for that. You are. Maybe you're seeking that, that satisfaction, that joy of life that your soul is craving by having the attention of other men drawn to you. The attention that maybe you're not getting at home. Men... Maybe you're letting your eyes roam. Maybe you're letting your hand click on those websites where you know you should not be going in order to find satisfaction for your soul, but you go there. Maybe it's the bottle. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's being angry and being the strong warfighter, right? Gaining the glory of the warrior. Maybe it's the white picket fence and living the American dream. It, it, whatever it is, we are all trying to find something that will fill these cravings that we have in our souls, right? Those cravings are not bad. In and, the, the yearning, the desire is not bad in and of itself. That's actually a mechanism that, that God planted in us as image bearers of, of, of His glory. He, he planted within us this mechanism of desire. And that desire was to fuel our behavior and everything that we do. Right? The, the, the problem that we have today is that we seek to satisfy those desires with a bunch of lesser things. We don't satisfy those desires with the one thing that they were intended to be satisfied by, which is God. Some people wonder, why, why am I unhappy? Why, why is life not satisfying to me? Why can't I just find that thing that I'm, that I'm looking for? Uh, you too, right? I'm, just, I'm in a song quoting mood today. <laughs> You too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You know what that song's about, right? He's referencing all kinds of biblical language and biblical imagery, and he's saying, I've tried it all, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. If I had a chance to speak with Bono, I would tell him, you haven't truly come to Christ. What you tried was maybe your idea of Jesus, but you haven't truly come to Jesus because Jesus says, the one who comes to me, truly comes to me, will never hunger. The one who believes in me will never thirst. Now, I wanted to unpack that much more, but for the sake of time, we need to keep going this morning. My, my point with that is the proof that Jesus is the true bread from heaven 
is his ability to truly satisfy our souls with heavenly life. Life of life with God, communion and fellowship with God that we even begin to experience here and now in this world. That's what it means to have eternal life. John 17, 3, it means that you know God and you know whom he sent. That, that, that kind of knowledge, that's an intimate spiritual communion with the Lord. Jesus says, that's what I came to give you. And those who come to me, they find it in me. Now, that presents us with a problem in this passage. Jesus says, I'm the true bread from heaven. The one who comes to me will never hunger. The one who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, those who come to me will truly be satisfied. But here's the problem. Not everyone experiences that satisfaction in Jesus. Why not? If Jesus is the true bread from heaven who came down to give heavenly life to the world, he says, then why is it that not everyone in the world experiences that heavenly life? That's the problem with this crowd, right? The crowd's not experiencing the life-giving power of Jesus. They're asking for some other bread. They haven't found in him the true heavenly bread. In fact, the more they try to come to Jesus and the more they hear his teaching, the more confused they get. It doesn't seem like he's satisfying them. In fact, as they're coming to him and hearing him talk more and more, they're growing more discontent with him. And we'll see that escalate all the way through the chapter where eventually it's the grumbling and the complaining turns into arguing, and then eventually they all decide, we're done with this. I'm leaving. Jesus says in verse 36, I am the bread of life, but, here's that strong contrast word, but, again, I I mentioned it last week in relation to the bread, but I said to you that you also have seen me and yet you don't believe. Right? As as human beings, we, we tend to think that if I can just see something, if I can just experience it for myself with my own eyes, touch it with my own hands, then I will be able to believe in it. Well, doesn't this passage right here show us that that's not true? How many things had this crowd seen Jesus do with their own eyes? They actually experienced him changing or uh, uh, multiplying the bread for them and multiplying the fish for them. And yet they, they, they gorged themselves on that, on that food. And yet they still weren't believing in him. Right? We, we tend to think that seeing will be believing automatically. If I see it, I'll automatically believe it. But this tells us that's not the case. You can see all the miracles that Jesus has done. You can can hear all of his teachings coming out of his mouth with your own ears and still come away being an unbeliever. And the question that confronts us in this passage is, why is that the case? Why is it If Jesus is the true bread from heaven, why is it that not everyone who experienced his miracles and heard his teachings wound up believing in him? Or even today, when we talk of of Christ to people out in the world, why are there some people who seem to get it and there are other people who don't? Well, again, the Jews in this section of Scripture would answer that question by saying, well, he hasn't done enough to prove himself to us. 
When he does another miracle, when he does more of those signs, then maybe we'll be able to believe in him. That's the same attitude of the world. Well, I can't see God. He hasn't done what I expect him to do, so why should I believe in him? Well, that may be what the crowd would say. That may be what the world would say, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus actually answers that question quite differently. He says in this passage, the reason you won't come to me is not because I haven't done enough to prove myself to you. Right? He says, you have seen me and you heard what I said, and yet you don't believe. It's not because he hadn't done enough for people. He actually tells the crowd, the reason you're not coming to me, listen, he tells this crowd, the reason you're not coming to me is because it has not been granted to you by the Father. You're not coming to me because the Father has not granted for you to come to me. Where do we see that in this passage? Uh, let, me, let me start here for just a moment. Can I, can I parentheses? Can I pause there for a moment? This, thank you, Corbin. <laughs> appreciate that. Appreciate you speaking on behalf of everybody. This truth is what got me kicked out of three churches. People do not want to hear this truth of the Bible. But for the believer, this should be one of the most liberating, most encouraging, most soul-strengthening truths that you will read of in the Scriptures. I hope you'll see that as we go along this morning. I understand that what we're about to walk through is very difficult. And if you are a uh, visitor here... (laughs) Among us, I'm, I'm sorry for that. You just stepped into the wrong part of John. Right? If you're an unbeliever in this room and you've never read the Bible before in your life, well, welcome to Jesus. This is what Jesus is going to, te- this is what Jesus is going to tell you. Jesus says, you can't come to me because the Father, you're not coming to me because the Father has not granted for you to come to me. And he explains that in three ways from verses 37 to 45. Okay? So the first thing Jesus says is in verses 36 and 37. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, but I said to you, you you saw these things, you heard what I said, and yet you do not believe. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. We're going to talk about that part more either next week or the week after, the one who comes, I will never cast out. Everyone whom the Father gives to the Son, the Son will not refuse. There's absolute harmony in their purpose and what they're seeking to accomplish in the salvation of sinners. Okay, but we'll focus on that next week. Notice what he says there. You've seen me and you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So there are two things to notice there. Despite what they had seen, They were not believing, and everyone whom the Father gives to the Son will come. So deducing from that statement, what does Jesus say is the reason why these Jews were not willing to believe in him? 
You can say it. I want you to say it because I don't want to be saying it at you. I want you to tell me what Jesus says is the reason they weren't believing. Hang on. One, two, three. Go. I think, I, think, I think that's right. I think you're right. They're not believing because they weren't given. It's because they were not given by the Father to the Son that they were not willing to come to the Son and believe. So what does that mean about those who will not come to Jesus? Those who will not believe in His message and His teaching? Well, it must mean that they were not given by the Father to the Son to be saved. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he speaks of a group of people who have been given to him? What is he talking about? What is that group? All whom the Father has given me. That's, that's a group of people that is distinct from those to whom he's speaking, right? So you've got the whole world of humanity, and then you've got this group that is given to him who will believe and will come to him. What is that group? Well, in essence, what Jesus is talking about in relation to that group is often referred to as the doctrine of election. That there are sinners who are elect and chosen by God and given to His Son so that His Son would save them and bring them home to glory. Now, I'm walking slowly through this because I don't want you to think I just pulled this out of my own hat. You need to see what Jesus teaches here. Because if you don't understand what Jesus teaches here, you will never be able to obey the command of 2 Peter 1.10 to make your calling and your election sure. How are you going to teach and train your own soul in relation to election? How are you going to test yourself to see, am I among the elect or not? How are you going to do that if you don't even believe in election? Or if you can't even understand what election is talking about? Jesus here is talking about this elect group of sinners whom the Father has entrusted to him to save. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll get more into this. I need, to, I need to get moving. I know that. I know this can be a difficult pill to swallow, a difficult teaching to process, but before you get offended and before you stop listening, let me simply ask you, what is Jesus saying here? We've already gone over it. All who are given to me by the Father come to me. Not everyone comes to me, therefore, not everyone is given. This is actually going to come up over and over again in this gospel. For example, in John 17, 2, just, just look briefly at what it says there. John 17, 2, Jesus says in praying to the Father, Father, You've given me, the Son of Man, you've given me authority over all flesh so that to all whom the Father has given him, he would give eternal life. 
Now, you've got two different groups of people there. You've got Jesus saying, the Father's given me authority over everybody, right? He's king over the world. He's king over you. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that reality, that Jesus is my king, whether they confessed it here or not, right? Jesus has been given authority over every single human being on the face of the planet from all human history. The Father gave him all authority over all all flesh. To what end? For what purpose does the Son have authority over all flesh? It's to the end that he would give eternal life to those whom the Father had given him. So you've got the whole mass of humanity under Jesus' authority, and then you've got this group that he says is given to him out of that mass And it's his job to make sure that they get eternal life. We're going to see this more in the Gospel of John. But this is referring to the group that we often call the elect, the chosen of God, those who are ordained and appointed to eternal life. Let me just show you those phrases in Scripture briefly so that, again, you know I'm not making this up. The Scriptures refer to this group that's given to the Son in, in different ways. It calls them the called the called. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, where Paul says, we preach the gospel, and to the Jews, the gospel is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, the gospel is foolishness, this message of a crucified Messiah for the salvation of the world. It's a stumbling block, and it's foolishness to Jews and to Gentiles, but to a third group of people whom he calls the called Christ becomes the power of God and the very wisdom of God, right? So they are the called, those who are called out by that gospel to belong to God through Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.10, it calls them the chosen. Paul says, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So you see, so God's God's chosen people, Paul says, are out there in the world somewhere. And it's my job as an appointed representative of Christ to go preach the message of their salvation, which will become the means of calling them out that they might inherit it. There's this elect group of sinners out there that needs the gospel proclaimed to them because God's going to use the message of that gospel to bring them to salvation. And i got to go preach it. i got to go find them. That's what missions is all about, right? We have confidence to go forth into missions and to labor in hard and difficult lands because we know that God has an elect people among that group and we got to go find them. We can spend seven years, we can spend 70 years preaching the gospel and never see a convert and yet do so hope-filled with grace and glory knowing that one day that message is going to break through and that seed is going to bear fruit for the glory of Christ's name. The whole history of missions proves that out. So they're called the, the called, the chosen. They're also called the elect. Mark uh, 13, 22. Jesus says false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now notice that. You know as well as I do, there are going to be many, many people in the world who will be led astray by false Christ and by false prophets. But Jesus says that there's one group 
in the world for whom it is impossible for them to be led astray. What is that group called? The elect. They're described as those appointed for eternal life. Acts 13.48 When the Gentiles heard that they were included in the hope of the Gospel. That's what's going on here. When the Gentiles heard that they were included in the hope of the Gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Appointed is also ordained. They had been set apart beforehand for this grace, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice how closely that that verse right there ties in with what Jesus says in John 6. Just leave this verse up here for a moment, please. In John, Jesus says, those who are given by the Father come. Right? Here, Paul says, those who have been, or Luke is writing, saying, those who have been appointed to eternal life believe. Those who are given come. Those who are appointed believe. Which one's first and which one's second? Those who are given is first. Those who they come is second. So, so being given is primary, coming is secondary. Right? So, or, or, or here, which one comes first? Believing in Jesus or being appointed to believe in Jesus? Which one? Being appointed. You are, you are a believer because God appointed you first. That's why you became a believer, because God chose that you would be one of His special trophies redeemed from the fallen mass of humanity and given to His Son so that His Son might be glorified through you. I have some related questions to this. Is it, would it throw a wrench in your brain if I, if I just for a moment dealt with two of them? Just, just quickly, the group that were given to the Son by the Father, called the elect, called the chosen, uh, the called, right? Called the called. <laughs> I should have come up with different words there. But anyway, that group was given to the Son. Here's a question that follows that. When were they given to the Son? When were they given to the Son? Well, the answer from Scripture is from all eternity past. So it didn't happen in time. They weren't given to the Son when they chose to believe. They were given to the Son, which is why they believe. So let's let's look at that. 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul's just glorying in the grace of the gospel that God has given to his people. And he says, God has saved us. And he has called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. The grace of the gospel that has flooded your heart and has caused you to believe in Jesus Christ for for the hope of forgiveness of your sins and for cleansing and for acceptance in the presence of God, that hope that flooded your heart was promised to you from eternity past. But if that doesn't help you feel the security of your salvation as a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't know what else would. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says the same thing. Paul was laboring as an apostle for the faith of those who are chosen of God 
and their knowledge of the truth, which accords in godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised. Now, the NASB says, long ages ago. But the Greek says here more literally, before times eternal. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before times eternal. So in essence, in, that, in, that eternal, in the eternal heart of God, there was a plan and a purpose before anything else was ever created. There was a plan. There was a blueprint. There was a, a predetermined will that He was going to be executing in relation to His creation. And all that human history is, is the unfolding of that decreed will of God. This promise of life for His people that was given to them from Eternity past. So when was this grace given? When, was, when were they given to the Son? They were given from all eternity. Second question. Why was this group given to the Son by the Father? If they were given from eternity past, why were they given? What did God see in them that would cause Him to say, Yep, I want that one. I want Lauren Huben right there. He's a good-looking guy. I'll take Seth. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Well, very simply, the Scripture's answer to that question is that God chose them to give to His Son Simply because that's what God wanted to do. Some people say there's no reason to know why God chooses some and not others. That is absolutely not true. We are told in Ephesians 1 why God chooses to, to save certain sinners. It's, it's for the praise of His eternal glory. It's, it's, it's according to the good pleasure of His will. That's Ephesians 1.5. It's because He was pleased to do it. To take from this mass of fallen humanity that deserves hell and is on its way and is going to split those doors wide open. To take from that fallen mass of sinners a people that would be for His own possession. A redeemed people that would magnify the glory of His grace. To the praise of His glory. Here's what some people say. The reason God chose some and not others is because God looked from eternity past, he looked down this imaginary thing called the corridors of time. This, this entity, this, this, this realm of, of some theoretical existence or something that's outside of God, outside of his control, doesn't begin with him. He looks down the corridors of time and he sees certain sinners who, are, who eventually are going to make the choice to believe in him. And so he takes those sinners who would choose him and he chooses them for himself. Who's ultimate in that scenario? The sinner still is. Right? This, this is why people describe this kind of theology that I'm explaining here as a God-centered, God-exalting theology. It's a, it's a theology that lets God be God and makes every single man, woman, and child nothing more than a creature. You cannot... <clears throat> here, we need to keep going. 
I want you to understand, Romans 9.11, just, just lay out this principle. Romans 9.11 tells us that God's purpose of election, you see that right there in the middle, that God's purpose according to, it says His choice. Literally, it simply says God's purpose according to election. God's purpose according to election has nothing to do with any consideration of the good or the bad that a person might do. Because this is talking about Jacob and Esau. That Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And Paul says, even though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice might continue, the older, was, uh, uh, the older, was sold. The older will serve the younger. For Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. What was the determining factor in making that decision? Why choose Esau or why not choose Esau and choose Jacob? Well, it wasn't because Esau was a better man. As I've heard other people say, if it were up to me, I would have chosen Esau. Jacob was a mama's boy. He was a deceiver. He, 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 was, he was effeminate. He was, I won't say that. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He, he constantly conned people out of their, their, their possessions and stole them for himself. You think God looked at that and said, aha, that's a man after my own heart. I'm going to choose him. No, he didn't say that. Jacob was a scoundrel. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? They were both born of the same parents, both in the line, uh, the promised line of Abraham. Because he had a purpose of election that he was going to continue. And that purpose is what determined which one he would choose and which one he wouldn't. It's an amazing thing. Jesus says in John 6, the Father has given me a group of people and that people will come to me. The reason, crowd, the reason you're not coming, you weren't given. He explains that more fully in verse 44. John 6, 44. It opens up in verse 41 with the Jews complaining and grumbling over what Jesus said, specifically that he said, I've come down from heaven. And they say to themselves, wait, no, 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 no. Isn't this, don't we know Jesus' mommy and daddy? Don't we know where Jesus grew up? Didn't we watch him grow up for these last 30 years? How is it that he can now say, I've come down out of heaven? Right? They didn't understand the incarnation. They didn't know about the story of the virgin birth or anything like that. The magi coming to worship uh, the child. They didn't know any of that. They simply assumed that he was a son of Joseph and Mary. And he had grown up among them and that was, that was his origin. Right? Th those were his origins. Well, Jesus doesn't even respond to that. He simply says, verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. That is, don't murmur, don't complain, quit whispering and muttering among yourselves in disagreement over what I've said. Stop murmuring, stop grumbling. Why? Because, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. 
You see, they're offended over his teaching, and they're grumbling among themselves about what he's saying. And Jesus looked at them and says, stop complaining about what I said. Of course you don't understand it. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you. When was the last time you said that to an unbeliever? There's been one incident out on the street of Minneapolis when I've said that to an unbeliever and it humbled him. But that's not my go-to phrase. Just some important things to notice about what Jesus says here. I'll try to be quick. Notice that Jesus is speaking universally about the entire human race when he says, no one can come to me. That word no one, I love that Greek word. It's literally two words put together. One of them means no or not, and the other one means the number one. Not a single one can come to me. This is a universal declaration of the entire state of the world. No one can come to me. And you notice, secondly, he makes a universal statement of inability. No one, not a single sinner, not a single person, can come to me. That word there, it's, it's, it's a word that comes from the family of dunamis. Uh, it, we get the word dynamite from that, but the basic idea there is ability or power or, or capability. That no one has the capability of coming to me. You don't have the power in yourself. All right, this is, this is total, what we call total inability. It doesn't mean that you are unable to get up and make decisions and dress yourself and eat breakfast and, and, and try to help an old lady across the street with her groceries. Sorry, old, old ladies. I love you. You are mothers to me. It doesn't mean that you can't decide to do those kinds of things. What it means is, is that you in and of yourself cannot muster up enough spiritual energy and insight and understanding and power to come to Jesus rightly. You cannot muster up within yourself enough to do what's pleasing in the sight of God, which begins with coming to His Son. Jesus says, no one can come to Me. No one. You do not have the ability. This is Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in the presence of God. Again, you could still make decisions, but you could not make decisions that were pleasing in God's sight because in God's presence, you were spiritually dead. Romans 8.7. This is why the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God because it is not able to submit itself to the law of God. There's not an ability to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. It's impossible for that to take place for a sinner. So that's the condition of every single sinner on the planet until something happens. And this is the third thing I want to point out. Universally, every sinner is without spiritual ability to come to Jesus, without ability to do anything pleasing in the eyes of God until something happens to them. And what is that? John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, something has to happen to us before we are enabled to see the truth about Christ and come to him. God the Father has to draw us first or else we will never come. This is the glory of that hymn. I love this hymn and we still have not sung it as far as I know. My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. And I know the truth of that for my own life. And I know that if you're a believer in here, you know it too. 
You were infatuated with your sin. You loved living a life of godliness. You were filled with a passion and an unholy desire to pursue the deeds of darkness. And it was because of the sovereign grace of God that that love affair with your sin was broken. You didn't choose that. God chose that for you. Now, we we need to end here. We're not even going to finish the rest of today. We'll, We'll pick this up next week, but let me end on this. Some people say that, well, there's a debate about what it means for God to draw a sinner. In our day, some people like to think of this word no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. People like to think of that in, in terms of like wooing someone, right? Like, like you would maybe like a dog. You get a, you get a little treat and you kind of hold that out to the dog. It's like, come here, come here, buddy. Come here, come here, come here. Or, or, or me, Baxter, my dog runs across, named after Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans. My dog Baxter runs across the street. He's a little, he's a little wild like Richard Baxter was. He runs across the street and I say, Baxter, get over here. And he goes... And he starts coming back, right? That could be a kind of wooing, a coaxing, coaxing maybe. But a lot of people think that that's what God does. He comes up alongside a sinner and he starts talking to that sinner saying, now come on, Jesus, Jesus really offers a lot. Don't you think you might consider him? Maybe, maybe you could let him come and just kind of be in your house for a little while. Maybe, try Jesus. If he doesn't work, the devil will take you back. Some people actually think that's what this word means. God draws him. He's wooing. Trying to convince them in that, in that way. But, you know, this word for draw, it actually literally means to drag. So, like, it was used, for example, of dragging in fishing nets. When, when fish were caught in a net, you'd drag that net up into the boat, or you would drag it up on the shore. I don't think the fish were deciding that they wanted to get out of the water and come on the shore at that point. Or, or you might uh, look at James 2.6 where this word is used in reference to the rich who drag believers into court. They, they drag them in. They bring them against their desire. Or in Acts 21.30, the, the Jewish crowd dragging Paul out of the temple, Right? That's a, that's a forceful act. It's something that you are domineering. You are dominating someone else by your own force and power and you are bringing them to where you want them to go. That's the idea behind this word. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father has them in tow and is bringing them to His Son. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea about this. That does not mean that those who come to Christ do not come willingly because they're being drugged there by the Father. Not what that means. It's not like a toddler, right, at home. I remember when my children were younger, tell them to do something they don't want to do, and there's this pouting, and there's this throwing a fit, and then I've got to bring... Oh, <laughs> Joel, I love you. It's your birthday, so I'm going to share this with everybody, Okay. <laughs> One time, Joelle was our feisty one. She's got red hair for a reason. And we were in Menards in, in Hudson when she was probably two years old. And she starts throwing this fit in the midst of Menards. She's swinging her fist. She does not want us to be anywhere near her. She wants to run off. 
And the only way that I could hold her where she wouldn't hit me was upside down by one leg. So here we are, we're walking out of Menards and I'm holding Joelle upside down by one leg and her other leg's over here and she's going, no, 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 no. We get out in the parking lot and there's this person filming or, you know, taping the whole thing. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I'm in trouble now. That's not what it's like whenever God draws or drags a sinner to Jesus. It's not like God, is, God the Father is, is bringing that sinner against his will and that sinner is going, no, no, I don't want to come. I don't want to give up my sin. I don't want to be saved. I don't want forgiveness. I want to stay where I'm at. And God says, nope, well, you're coming anyway. Get over it. That's not, that's not the idea here. What this is talking about, what it's emphasizing, is the irresistible power of God the Father's work of bringing his chosen people to his son. It's not irresistible because of coercion. It's irresistible because of conviction. It's not irresistible because of coercion. He's not coercing you to come. It's irresistible because of conviction. God the Father loves you and He's chosen to love you and to give you to His Son as His Son's prize and reward for His Son's suffering. And He's going to come to you. And He's not going to woo you in that dumb illustrative way that I said earlier. He's going to actually convince you in your heart about the glory of Jesus in such a way. He will cause you to see the truth of His Son in such a way that it will be irresistible to you. You will not be able to say no. Because your eyes, the eyes of your heart will have been enlightened and you will see Him as He truly is for the first time. Now, you know what it's like when you have a paradigm shift. right? When, when some fact or some truth just kind of barrels up against you like a, like a freight train or something, or, or you get T-boned by something that you didn't know was true before, and all of a sudden, your whole world is rocked, and, and you see truth that you didn't see before, but now you know there's no going back to the lie. Now that I see the truth, I can't go back to what's not true. That's the way it is whenever God causes someone to be born again. When He gives them that mind and that heart to understand and receive the Gospel of Jesus, He shows them its truthfulness in such a way that that sinner is no longer able to turn back to the lie. The heartfelt conviction. That's why Jesus can say so definitively, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Because everyone that the Father gives to His Son, the Father will draw to His Son. It's the absolute security of salvation for every single believer. Now we're going to pick up next week and look at the third way that Jesus describes this reality to this crowd of Jews. Why they weren't believing in Him. Well, because the Father had not given them to Jesus to save. There's a third way He describes that in, in verse 45. And we'll get to that next week, Lord willing. Okay. Let me say one more thing here. Um, next week, my plan was to deal with questions and concerns that are brought up in relation to this doctrine. I have a few in mind. One is such as, that doesn't sound fair. Um, or, um, 
Um, another one, um, that's, that's unjust of God. I want to deal with some of those, but if you have a specific question you would like me to answer in relation to this topic, email me. Please email me this week and make sure it's before Wednesday so that I have time to think through it and process it and get a a good answer for you as best as I can find in the scriptures, okay? But if you have a question you want me to address next week in relation to this topic, please email me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this mercy and for this grace. I pray that as we come to your table in just a moment, that we would come with hearts that are bowed in humility. Lord, if this doctrine does anything, ought to do anything in our hearts, it ought to humble us before you. Which is exactly why you were teaching it to this crowd, that you might humble them and get them off of the judgment seat and back into their rightful place as condemned sinners who are at the bar of God, who are under his scrutiny, being judged by the Lord. Father, let us be humble before you. And let us rejoice in you gladly for the glory and the grace that you have given to all who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us now, Lord. Prepare us to partake in the table pure and whole hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.